Welcome everybody back into the extremely riveting NBA podcast. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Carvel Teft. A lot has happened in the two weeks that we took off from the pod. Most notably, NBA players entered the bubble, and now we actually have some scrimmages. So we have live basketball that is televised that we can walk for the watch for the first time since early March, which has been pretty interesting, pretty exciting. It's not like we're getting the best competition. It's not like all the starters are playing necessarily the normal minutes, but we are definitely seeing some stars out there for some legitimate minutes with some actual competition, which has been fun. So... As we gear up to the NBA's actual return to play, which is in six days on July 30th, when we will kick things off with Jazz Pelicans and then Clippers Lakers, really going to be an exciting uh, short slate of games on opening night. As we approach that date, Carvel and I today are going to talk about five things that each of us individually are interested in or excited by, specific things with teams and players uh, as far as finishing out the regular season. So the eight games that remain to determine seating before the playoffs. So Carvel, What's the first thing that you're looking forward to or interested in or whatever? Yeah, man. Well, I'm just excited to have basketball back. It's been awesome to watch. Um, And there's a ton of things to look forward to. First off, of course, just being the season and being able to play out the season. But um, I'm going to start in Phoenix where all good things start and most of them end. Such is your career. Such is your career. Close enough. (laughs) Close enough there. Um, But I want to start with the Phoenix Suns because they are a team that I've liked all year and they've teamed... They are a team that I've liked for years because of Devin Booker, but I've grown to love the whole squad in general. I love what they're doing down there. I, I love the trend. I thought it was at first it was funny just how how the media was taking it with with the, with the ownership up there and the management and really just coming down on them the last couple of summers. And now they're actually kind of building something. And I think it's it's hard for a lot of people to say that they are, but they are. And I think that we need to watch them in the bubble because. They're one of those teams that kind of just got thrown in there. You know, the NBA is trying to make as much money as possible. They wanted those 22 teams in there. The Suns and Wizards really don't have a place in there. You can make the same argument for the Kings and the Spurs. But I do think a healthy and rested Suns team is something to look forward to. When we talk about this team, we're talking about a team that was extremely surprising at the beginning of the year. You saw a game that they beat the Sixers in a defensive battle. That was commonplace for their first 10 games. They were upsetting teams. They had a really, really close game against the Clippers, I believe, in their second game of the season. Um, came down to the wire. They should have won that one. But the thing I want to touch on is that their healthy lineup has been remarkably good in a lot of minutes. The Aiton Booker, Rubio, Ubre Bridges lineup is plus 18.6 points in 226 minutes played this season. They rebound the ball better. They play better defense. They move the ball better. All the numbers are up. That's 200 plus minutes of basketball and we're seeing really good hoops there so I don't think you can call that an anomaly that's a really really good lineup and we see it all over the place with this team another thing I want to touch on Javon Carter he's not in a bad lineup if you watch the Suns at least a little bit this year you'll see him out there it always seems like he's a dog like he's He's, he's making the little things happen on the court to make his team better, and he is. He's making his team better all over the place. There's not a bad lineup with him in it. I think we should be excited to hopefully see him play minutes. But even without that first lineup, if you trade in Bridges, if you trade out Bridges for a Saric, or if you trade out Bridges for Baines or Aiden for Baines, whatever it is, you're still getting lineups that are plus 13.4 up, plus 14.6 Points, like, it's it's really amazing how much they have fluctuated based on who's on the floor for them. And obviously, they're a skinny team, top to bottom, man. They don't have much depth. 
There's people playing on this team that shouldn't be playing when people get hurt. A lot of people are thrown into the fire, but we're coming into this bubble healthy. No one important opted out for their team, and they're young. They should be able to stay healthy. Hopefully, Oubre can get back on the court, contribute just like he was. He's been having a great year, but I just I don't think we can forget or diminish the hot start to the season for the Suns because it wasn't a mistake. It was a healthy team, and that's going to be hard to rely on in the future, particularly because of someone like Ricky Rubio, who struggled with injuries a lot in his career. He just doesn't seem to be able to play at a high level consistently over a large volume of games. But in this small sample size, I do believe that Ricky Rubio can hopefully stay healthy. And if he does, I think that's going to be huge for the Suns. I think we're going to see a reinvigorated Suns team, and I think they're going to steal a lot of games on teams that are kind of coasting, already have their seeds figured out, and, and they're going to wake the rest of the world up a little bit. So I'm excited to see it. The unfortunate thing from the Suns' angle is that at 26-39, and 39, they're not going to be the ones to get into the play-in game. Uh, so they have, I would say, as slim of a chance as anyone that is going to Orlando of actually having a shot at the playoffs. However, I completely agree. And there are all sorts of statistics that people have pulled about how good the healthy Suns are. And they're really impressive. And, you know, I believe they started the season 6-3. and three, Certainly caught my attention operating out of Phoenix for most of the year. They gave a lot of Suns fans who have had a brutal decade a legitimate reason to be optimistic and hopeful. And we've seen what DeAndre Ayton has been able to become in spite of his suspension, which is really what knocked them out of having any chance of making the playoffs realistically. You know, he has improved so much as a two-way player. He's really dynamic when he's out there at times. Kelly Oubre, the revolution of him as a player, a really underrated offseason from the Suns as well, acquiring Rubio and Baines. And not to say that it's underrated now, but in the moment, these, you know, a lot of people laugh at the Ricky Rubio deal, and I myself was not a fan of it. I think that I've always, you know, been relatively fond of Ricky Rubio as a player, but I think that the dollar value on that, I just, you know, whatever it was, three or 51 million, it seemed high for Rubio, but he has been fundamental to this team's success. And I'm really excited to see them as well. I, you know, I hope that they turn some heads and that they win some big games. It's just unfortunate that they're not going to be a team that actually has the shot at getting the playoffs. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, it's really interesting because they're reintroduced into this environment where they're finally healthy. They're going to be all playing together. Everyone's going to be rested. And I'm certainly interested in seeing how that plays out as well. Yeah. And just one more thing before you touch on your first point. Uh, along the Rubio line, I do think he's more of a floor raiser than a ceiling raiser. And that's the next step for them is to get the fit. I, I still don't like the contract just because I do think that they need someone else to fill in yeah. that role, whether that's sending him to the bench or dealing him, I'd prefer dealing him, but he is a guy that has shown because of his floor raising abilities that the rest of this group can win. And now we just need someone else to elevate it. Absolutely. You know, and you do, the reality is that point guard has become a scoring position in the league, and that's a thing if Rubio... And, you know, there are definitely times where Devin Booker can be the de facto point guard, but he's phenomenal off the ball. He's one of my favorite off-ball superstars to watch in, in the NBA. My first one is pretty obvious, and it's something that has been highly discussed, but it is something I'm really excited and interested to see, and that is the Sixers playing with Shake Milton as a starter and Al Horford coming off the bench. There was a few games during the regular season where they tried Horford coming off the bench, then they went back to him starting, and now they have said that they're returning to a Horfordless starting lineup with Ben Simmons at the four, Shake Milton running point. And, you know, I think that this is a logical decision because obviously the Horford acquisition, uh, relatively to, to expectations, has been catastrophic. He's been really in many ways a detriment to the team, and it's not completely on him. It's just a stylistic thing. You can't have three players who prefer to play inside and yes Horford can shoot 
and yes, Joel Embiid can kind of shoot and is willing to get out there and space the floor a few times a game. People have their nature as players, and I think that we really saw that embodied this year with the Sixers team, which we all know has been a disaster. And it is really particularly a Horford, Simmons, Embiid starting lineup issue. Those three, any lineup that includes those three players, but far and away who you would expect to be their three stars, Horford, Simmons, and Embiid, they have a negative plus minus with a 98.8 offensive rating, which would be by far worse than the league. If you add Tobias Harris to that lineup, who's another guy who, yes, really good player individually, but a big guy who kind of likes to crowd the mid-range, and he's not a guy who spaces the floor effectively. Those lineups have a 97.7 offensive rating, which is just historically awful considering how great offenses are in the modern NBA. So it doesn't matter how stingy they are defensively, which is what excited me coming into the season. I thought you have three guys who at their best are defensive player of the year candidates. Horford is no longer that, but in the past couple years, he's entered that conversation. And then you also have Josh Richardson, who plays really hard on that side of the ball and is long. And that was what's always intriguing to me and why I thought they could be a finals team. Obviously, that all fell apart. And I just think it's irrefutable that you cannot continue to trot out a lineup with those four players starting. And I think Horford, and it's really not a Tobias Harris issue. I just think he makes it even more funky. But Horford is really the problem. And taking him out of the lineup, starting lineup, it's going to be interesting. And what you get in Shake Milton, you know, there's a reason a lot of people have become excited about him. Because he really got on a tear uh, at the end of the regular season before we had this suspension. His last six games in which he started, 19.5 points and four assists per game. Had a couple of really explosive performances. He's 6'5". He has a 7-foot wingspan on defense. So it's still not like they're playing small. Their shortest player is still going to be 6'5 and incredibly long. And he's a fluid, dynamic shot maker. He competes on both ends. He has some nice playmaking instincts. And I think that he's, you know, looking back, one of the steals of that draft coming out of SMU was really not a guy who was discussed all that much. I liked him relative to where he was picked. I certainly did not expect him to be starting on a team that is, you know, come playoff time, if things go right, as dangerous as anyone. So I want to see how this plays out, and I want to see if they can resist re- reinterjecting Horford into the starting lineup because if they lose a couple games I just think they need to understand that tinkering is necessary here you know you are not going to beat teams with the with Horford in the starting lineup as this team is currently constructed so I like the move a lot I think most people do and even if maybe Shake Milton isn't the guy maybe they continue to tinker and maybe it's Furkan maybe it's Thibel personally I think it's going to be Shake just because he can actually run the point for you but I don't know. I'm interested in seeing how this plays out. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I totally agree that I think it will be shake. And I also agree that I think it's going to be fun. And I think it's going to be good. I'm really excited to see if we can get... Uh, we talk about it a lot with trying to find these Draymond replicates. But I'm trying to... I, I, I want to see a Simmons-Milton short pick and roll. That would be mm-hmm. awesome. Getting Simmons in the middle of the floor with space. He's got a nice floater game. Good touch. And then, of course, you have Embiid in the dunker spotter just around the bucket. That mm-hmm. that That helps with spacing. You don't have to send Embiid to the perimeter every single time that uh, Simmons is on the pick and roll if he's not going to dive every time. And I just think, in general, it's it's finding the right spot for your players. And Simmons should have never been playing with the Horford and Embiid tandem. He, he deserves to be at that four spot. He deserves to be in a lot of pick and roll auctions. And he deserves to have the ball a lot in transition. But at the end of the day, he, he's not a half-court initiator. Yeah. Um, and he's definitely on a championship caliber half-court initiator. And I'm not saying Shake Milton is, but it's a step in the right direction. I think it's something that we've, as fans, have wanted Brett Brown to experiment with for years, whether it be Shake Milton or someone else. But I think it's going to be fun. 
And uh, Ben Simmons, you know, a lot has been made about the fact that he's being moved to power forward and people say, well, that's always been his natural position. He's a half-court power forward. He's a transition point guard. And still, he's going to capitalize on those transition opportunities as he always does because he is just so special there where he can see everything and he's so dynamic athletically and so gifted as a passer. But hopefully... With all this time that they've had to, you know, really get creative with what they can do with him in the half court, as you mentioned, really, for half court purposes, he should be like Draymond Green. He should be doing so much out of the short roll where it's, you know, finding people, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of intriguing options there, and I'm excited to see how that plays out. So what's the second thing that you're looking forward to? The second thing I'm looking forward to is the Blazers. Um, in general, obviously, the the clearest pick here would be playoff Dame just because obviously he's had two of the most iconic moments in playoff history. Everyone loves to see him in the, the those high intensity moments, particularly if there was a Lakers matchup at the one and eight seeds in the West. But I'm looking, I'm looking deeper into the squad. I'm looking at the Collins and Nurk tandem. I'm interested to see what they can do because last year they didn't play them together at all. There, there is no lineup. There's no positive lineup with both of them almost no minutes with that tandem and you saw the Nurkic minutes being a lot more productive than the Collins minutes you you saw their best lineup last year was probably Nurkic Evan Turner Alfred Camino Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum it, it was Nurkic with a bunch of wings it, it, Nurkic with three playmakers that's that's what worked for the Blazers but they invested in Zach Collins and he is a guy that showed in three games this year that he might have improved a little bit he looked more fluid on the court I was just looking at how he moved his body all that stuff and and, and what we saw yesterday in their, their their first scrimmage but they have to find a way to build some cohesion with that group because there's too much invested and they're too they're, they're not deep enough to not maximize those two and I'm really excited to see how they do it because Terry Stotts is a really interesting coach and I think it's I think it relates a little bit to the Sixers dilemma where it's just you you have these two bigs that you want to play at the same time because they both add things to your squad that, that you've needed, that you need to make the playoffs, whatever it is that you need to succeed in the playoffs, whether it's whether it's the defensive stuff with Collins, he's better at sliding with the um, with guards, he's also a better rim protector, and then it's a lot of the offensive stuff with Nurk, but I want to see it maximized. My ideal situation would be both of them starting, which is what they are trying out. Um, it, it, it's what we're hearing that they're going to try out. And I think it could be really dangerous if they can get Collins to maybe commit to more of a perimeter game and um, get Nurk exactly where he's supposed to be, bunch of pick-and-roll uh, uh, options, getting that ball in the short pick-and-roll, getting that ball in the high post, playmaking, all that stuff. Because this guy's way better than we ever, ever expect. He hasn't been able to play a lot of minutes his entire career. I think he's never played more than 27 minutes a game. Last time we saw him healthy, he was 20-14-4 and four per 36 minutes. So if we can ramp these minutes up, which I know is dangerous because he's coming off injury, but we have the scrimmages and we have the planned games before, if they can make the playoffs and we can ramp the minutes up, I think he's going to be really, really dangerous. We saw that he doesn't seem like he's lost a step with all that touch and playmaking yesterday. He had a huge game. And again, it was those. It was the per minute for him. Again, he, he he would just blow those averages, even the averages I just mentioned, out the water for 36 minutes yesterday. So I, I want to see more high pick and rolls with both of them. I want them both on the court. I think it could be so lethal to spread the court that way if you're giving Lillard both these guys as options on those picks at half court. And I just think that the Blazers need something. You know, they've they've been 
so similar for so long. They've been productive, but not quite there. And you got to be looking for anything at this point. And I think it's going to be exciting to see just because we haven't seen these guys all year, essentially. They're exciting players. They're exciting bigs, and they're on an exciting team. So I'm ready to see Dame with some more weapons again. And I'm personally, I'm hoping that they are the ones to snag that eight seed just because I think that would be an awesome matchup against the Lakers. Yeah, I mean, obviously the Blazers have been incredibly intriguing and they're a team that a lot of people are looking out for. I think some people are overrating them, talking about how they wouldn't be very surprised if they upset the Lakers. I don't think that that makes sense. And one of the complicating factors with this is you talked a lot about how to play Nurkic and Collins together. And I do think there's a reason that, yes, Zach Collins improved last year. It looked like maybe he had improved a little bit more this year. There's always been intrigue with him as far as, you know, rim protection and floor spacing potential because he has always had some decent touch on his jump shot. And as you mentioned, he is a better lateral mover rim protector than Nurkic, although Nurkic is a pretty solid rim protector. I just think there's a reason that Myers Leonard got a lot of minutes, and if I'm not mistaken, more minutes than Zach Collins last year, and his value is just floor spacing there. So if Collins can really establish that outside shot, absolutely there's intrigue there, and I'm optimistic. Nurkic is a beast. I love him, and I can't wait to see him again. There were smart people who thought last year that he was the Blazers' second-best player. I think that CJ's skill set offensively is still really special. He's one of the best difficult shot makers in the league, but Nurkic impacts winning. And he opens up a lot for you offensively. The complicating factor to me is this. The Blazers did not expect to have either of these guys back this year. And so to fill that void, they went out there and got Hassan Whiteside, who's only on a one-year deal, who I'm sure they have no intention of bringing back this offseason. But what do you do with a guy who has been that productive, leading the league in blocks, giving you 16 and 14 a game? Because I don't. there's no doubt in my mind that Nurkic is the better player and certainly more valuable to winning. But... You can't play those two together at all. Those are two complete non-floor spacers. Whiteside is a lumbering burden on defense unless he's literally swatting a shot or grabbing a rebound. So I think that's going to be difficult. And then, you know, what do you do with Mello? Because if you want to try Zach Collins at the four, that means you're taking minutes away from Carmelo Anthony. And considering how he thinks of himself, I don't know if that's going to go exceptionally well. Two very different players, but they're filling the same void because... It made sense. You weren't going to sit around with Anthony Tolliver and Mario Hazonia filling the majority of your minutes at power forward. They had to go out and get some sort of spark, and they got that with Carmelo Anthony, and they did the same thing at center. They got a guy who, at the very least, can you know protect the rim and grab rebounds on Hassan Whiteside. I just don't know how this all interacts with each other, and maybe they try to move Melo to the three uh, because Ariza's going to be out. I'm really... I'm interested in seeing how this all plays out as well. I just think that there's going to be more confusion immediately than there will be overwhelming success. Wow, look at how great this is. Because you literally, there will be, if they, if they know what they're doing, which of course they do, Terry Stotts is a solid coach, there should be zero Nurkic-Whiteside overlap. And then, are you only playing Hassan Whiteside 18 minutes a game? Because he's not going to be happy with that. So I really... I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on what to do with the white side Nurkic, and then you also throw Collins in their dilemma, but I think that's going to be pretty problematic. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the way you go about it is disregard Hassan Whiteside's feelings about it at all, and you're playing Collins at the four, and you're playing a slim amount of minutes. I-, I think you're if you're going small, you're probably putting Melo at that four, and mm-hmm. then having Whiteside out there, and or you're playing Collins at the four, mm-hmm. and you're going big with Whiteside or Nurkic at center. But I think, like you said, I think Whiteside should play about 18 minutes a game with either Mello or Collins next to him. And then if Nurkic is out there, Collins, same thing. Collins or Mello next to him. I would prefer Collins. But, and again, I'm not saying that 
necessarily it's going to work. I, I'm just excited to see how it, how it yeah. goes because I do believe in Terry Stotts as a coach. One more thing, a live update here. I wanted to check the Philly-Grizzlies game, which is in the fourth quarter right now, just because I wanted to see how that Shake Milton lineup's doing. It looks like they're winning and playing well, but Ben Simmons has hit a three. Wow. He's one for two from three. So I haven't seen video of it. Maybe it's a half-court huck. I'm going to assume mm-hmm. it wasn't, but we do have a live update here wow. that Ben Simmons has hit his second three, although it won't count to his stats, but his second three of the season. I thought he had two NBA threes. I think he might have two NBA threes. DeAndre Ayton also oh, made history. Yeah, I think he does. But DeAndre Ayton also made history with his uh, first NBA three yesterday. I just think the thing with Whiteside in particular, to get back to the Blazers, is he has potential just because of how dramatic he can be to kind of be a destructive force. And the Blazers have a really strong infrastructure organizationally. They have had the same core of Dame and CJ for a long time now and it's worked really well and they've produced consistent results but I just wonder you know Hassan Whiteside is not above not giving effort when he's out there it is a contract year he is in the playoffs so it's more likely than not that he will go out there and try to play his best but if there's anyone I would be concerned about it's the guy who feels like he's been playing like a star is lined up to make the big money and then all of a sudden gets booted from the starting lineup and has shown that he can have really, you know, sort of childish behavior in the past as he did in Miami last year. My second one is an interesting one, and I didn't really expect to have it, but I'm interested in if the Sacramento Kings can work their way into the playing game. And to a lot of people, that has become a two-team race between the Pelicans and the Blazers for obvious reasons. The Blazers are fully loaded. They were the Western Conference finalists last year with a roster that on paper individually was probably inferior to this year's the Rodney Hood the fact that he's not coming back that still hurts them and the fact that they won't have a Reza also hurts them but the Kings Blazers and Pelicans are all tied three and a half games back from the eight seed obviously the Pelicans with the addition of Zion Williamson have been playing much better as of late but so have the Sacramento Kings started the year as a major disappointment a lot of people expected them to be Playoff contenders after going 39-43 and 43 last year, kind of out of nowhere with the exciting fox healed tandem, and they struggled. You know, Luke Walton really screwed up a lot. They were playing at a remarkably slow pace. The healed fox minutes together were not working, uh, and De'Aaron Fox also went through injury, so there were just all these compounding factors. But since they've sent Buddy Heald to the bench, which was a really pretty a ballsy move, they're 13-7. and seven. They've beaten the Clippers twice over that stretch. They had a four-point loss to the Thunder without De'Aaron Fox. They've just been a much better team. Top 12 in both offensive and defensive rating over that stretch. But I think what really matters here is I would never sit here and say that, you know, man-to-man, the Kings are a better team than the Blazers or the Pelicans. But the logistics here are that the Kings have a really easy schedule. So do the Pelicans. But I think a lot of people have started to just sort of pencil the Blazers into that play-in spot. And, you know, maybe a lot of people have started to pencil them in as beating the Grizzlies. And maybe some people have done the same with the Pelicans. The Blazers have six straight games of Celtics, Rockets, Nuggets, Clippers, Sixers, Mavs. I think fully healthy, they're still not the better team in any of those games. We won't know what the Sixers will look like, but that's a really tough slate. And on the flip side for the Kings, they have the Magic, the Nets, the Spurs, and the Pelicans twice. Those are all teams well below 500. That's over half of their remaining schedule. Pelicans have a similarly easy schedule, but what I think it's going to come down to is those two head-to-head Pelicans-Kings games. I think that that could really swing who ends up in that playing game because the Kings, I mean, the Nets, if they don't win that game, it's over. The Spurs and the Magic, besides the Wizards, I mean, those are 
you know, two, two of those are three of the four weakest teams in the bubble that they're playing right there. So I do think we have to remember this Kings team has been playing better. It is a talented roster that is almost fully healthy right now, except for Marvin Bagley, who's still dealing with a foot injury. But it's the first time they've been like that all year or almost all year. You have Rashawn Holmes, who's back. You have De'Aaron Fox playing. You have Buddy Heald. You have Bogey. You have Corey Joseph. You have Kent Bazemore. You have a lot of quality players. Of course, you have Bielitsa, who can rain threes at any moment. So I think this is a talented team. There's a reason that people were excited about them coming into the season. And, you know, even since then, there have been some unanticipated overachievers. Like, I don't think many people, even if they like Rashawn Holmes, expected him to be as dynamic and effective as he has been. So I still think they're the third best team of that trio. But I do think it is a possibility, and I would never bet on it, but I do think... You know, I'm interested in seeing if they can really add some drama and push for that play-in spot. Yeah, you know, I love I, we've we've both liked the Kings for a while. We're both De'Aaron Fox fans. I think we're both Buddy Heald fans. Um, I I think there's almost no shot that they make the play-in game it, just because there's a level of consistency that they lack and that they have lacked that is really frustrating if you're. A person wishing for them to succeed just because I think they're always waiting for this lineup for, for the healthier lineup and they're always waiting for Bagley and everyone to return and all that stuff but you know Bagley just got hurt again and you just kind of have to work with what you have and I think every game they come out and it seems like they have a new identity and I will turn on the Sacramento Kings one game and they're playing the Lakers the Clippers and they're pushing the pace and De'Aaron Fox looks great and I'm like wow this is a young team that is just getting better and can really compete. And then you turn on a game against the Hornets and they're slow, lethargic, don't know what to do in the half court at all. De'Aaron Fox is totally lost. And that's just been their identity. I, I don't think they're going to be able to string together games, which is what you have to do if you want to get this plan game. Because the Pelicans are going to win some games. The Blazers are going to win some games. The Grizzlies are going to win some games. Like these teams have been consistent. They've shown that when they're healthy, they can win. They have stars and I, I just don't think the Kings are at that level. I, I think they go through serious identity crises, and it's just it, – it's frustrating. It's frustrating because if it was my choice, I would probably have the Kings or the Suns out, out of the West yeah. just based on the players that I like and who I want to succeed most in the league. But I, I just don't think they can string it together, and a lot of that falls on Luke Walton and, and f making this team into – having some sort of identity in their half-court offense and some sort of overarching – plan and strategy which obvious which fans are obviously pushing for the the running running gun offense but we'll see but i i highly doubt it just because you know these teams have been off for three months it's not like they've been for the last four months game planning and finding a new identity yeah. and luke walton is not a different coach than he was four months ago so i'm i'm excited to watch them play but i'm not optimistic about the final result I'm really interested in seeing how these guys step up in what are going to be the biggest games of their careers when you're talking about Buddy Heald and De'Aaron Fox because they were in that eight seed decently far into last season and then they kind of fell apart at the end. And now you have this short stint where you just have to hold it together for eight games and you just have to beat those teams like the Magic and the Nets and the Spurs and get one or maybe both of those against the Pelicans. So I agree. I don't think it's going to happen. As I've said, I think that they're the third of those three teams that people are considering as the contenders to face off against Memphis in the playing game, but the schedule and the fact that they are as healthy as they have been definitely intrigued me. So uh, before we move on to your third thing, just one other thing going back to, to Nurkic and how interesting the Blazers can be. 
he had a plus 13 on off last year, which is literally, I think only Giannis out of players who play legitimate minutes is better than that in the entire NBA this year. It's maybe LeBron's up there. Maybe Chris Paul's up there. That's pretty ridiculous. But what is the third thing that you're excited for as we uh, get into the bubble? The third thing, and it's minor and it's not going to last very long, but I want to see these early, early games, early playoff series, the unleashed Laker wings and guards, because it was exciting yesterday when we saw them get back in action because there are a lot of waiters minutes. There's sure to be a lot of Caruso minutes. There might be some Taylor Horton Tucker minutes, and I mean in, in real playoff games, and there's going to be a lot of more pressure on Kuzma because of the Ron. I mean, they were already skinny outside of LeBron and AD on the offensive end. We know that, but getting rid of Bradley and getting rid of Rondo, not saying that they're these offensive powerhouses or whatever, but just those spots in the lineup, the minutes they're eating up, they're trusted veterans that have the ball in their hands, a decent amount in games, can operate as secondary playmakers, particularly Rondo. But the younger guys are kind of exciting. And Dion Waiters is a guy that I guarantee is not going to be scared of any moment. And, and there are negatives and positives to that. But he is someone that thinks he's the best player on the court every time he's on the court. And sometimes you need that. You need, you need those type of attitudes on your team for contenders. And watching him yesterday... They don't have a pick-and-roll initiator threat like LeBron. And or obviously, no one, in the, no one in the league has that level of LeBron, but they don't have the secondary pick-and-roll initiator threat. And Dion Waiters coming off these screens, snaking around, hesitating, and then shooting his jump shot, or putting pressure on the rim and dishing, the Lakers have been missing that for a long time. And that's why it's hard when LeBron sits. A lot of people put it on AD, but AD's job is to screen and roll or isolate. If you don't have someone... Like, 80's doing his job at the same level when LeBron's on the court and off the court. And I think the minutes would look good if LeBron, if AD had another, you know, because LeBron's minutes are with AD or with JaVale or with Dwight, these good screen and roll guys. 80's minutes are with LeBron, where he's good, obviously, when he has that initiator, and then he doesn't have anything. I think it's going to be really good for Caruso to get more minutes. I think he can pick and roll initiate a little bit, and I think that's going to be really good for AD. I think the waiters' pick and roll initiation is going to be really good. I like to see Kuzma just getting more involved. I, I think a huge, huge thing for the Lakers is in these games, in these high-pressure seeding games, these high-pressure first-round, second-round playoff games, it's going to be huge to get Kuzma comfortable because this is a guy that has had question marks his entire career, but whether we like it or not, he's being thrown into the fire. It has been made very clear that he's going to play real minutes on this team, and he needs to get comfortable playing defense and being relied upon on defense, especially with Rondo and Bradley out and him having to take some uncomfortable matchups probably. And he needs to be more comfortable being that pick-and-roll operator, a better threat off the ball, all that stuff. And I, these are things that I want to see Taylor Horton Tucker do too because next year, assuming this team is still together, I think he can be another guy that can pick-and-roll initiate because they have that pace to them, they're they're Guys that can make the right play. Dion Waiters can make the right play. He doesn't do it a lot, but he can make the right play. Horton Tucker can do it. Caruso can do it. And I just think it's going to be good because Rondo and Bradley have been eating up these minutes, and they can't fill those roles. They don't have that in their game. Rondo can't shoot. So, you know, he's he's very circle loop on that pick and roll, take your time, but there's not much production, um, not much substance in it. And, and I think... I think it's just going to be exciting. I, I think it, it, the reason it's exciting is because I think the Lakers are going to win the championship. So I think everything about this team is important. Every little aspect, every every little player tweak, every lineup tweak, 
and they're getting thrown thrown into the fire here. They're going to have to make a lot of them. They had two players, two important players, one duck out and one get injured. So I'm excited to see how the holes are filled and if they can come out of it even better because I, I think that's a possibility. Yeah, you have to be fascinated by the Lakers team and the the squad that they have assembled because obviously you have so many unique personalities, but stylistically, I think you make a great point about the potential value of Dion Waiters. And that could definitely go south just because he is a guy who likes to take a lot of shots and historically has missed a bunch of shots. But what what this team couldn't do, and the reason that I think Rondo continued to get minutes as bad as he was, is when you're trying to have someone actually run the second unit, I like Alex Caruso a lot. He's not really a true point guard. So many of his buckets come from crafty cuts and just doing the dirty work, and he finds these holes in the defense, and he capitalizes. And he's very good at that. But he's really a combo guard. And you want a guy who can actually facilitate the offense. And, you know, Deion Waiters is still a two, but he's a small guy, and obviously, you know, positions are just nominal anyways. He can do he can handle that role of, for 10 minutes a game, being the primary ball handler and facilitator and bucket getter. And I think that he's going to be important and dependent upon. I definitely think the Avery Bradley loss does hurt just because he's the best version of the three. Well, actually, Danny Green's the best version of the 3 and D guy that they have. But then Avery Bradley is right behind him and he's had a really productive season. And, you know, if JR has to come in and fill those minutes, we'll see. Obviously, he's been able to contribute to championship teams. It was a few years ago. But if he can commit defensively, the dude is an athlete, even though he's older now, and he's an athlete who can shoot the hell out of the ball. So there's got to be intrigue there, and I'm immensely excited to see how this pans out. And I really do think the value of Dion Waiters, because Kuzma has been there, can get hot coming off the bench. And in playoff games, sometimes you need crazy things to happen. Sometimes you need a guy like Kuzma or Dion to step up and make six threes in a game and create for themselves and have a big quarter, you know, like Vinnie Johnson for the late 80s Pistons. There are these guys who just come into the game and change it. And Kuzma and Dion, they're both inefficient. They're both unpredictable. But I would rather depend on Dion just because he's, you know, the primary ball handler. And I think it's just going to be easier for him to create. And he's really not going to be scared of the moment. He's been there. He's played in big games before. And sometimes he fails. It's crazy for a team that that I would agree is the championship favorite to be depending on a guy like Deion Waiters, but that's the reality of the bubble and the fact that they invested so much in two guys that everything around them has been just kind of picking up off the scrap heap. Totally. And that's where you trust your stars. I think about someone like Steven Jackson for the 2003 Spurs, who his whole career, he's getting ridiculed for his shooting volume, his efficiency, uh, his his ability to be a good teammate, to, to, to work with his teammates and coaches. And you put him in a good system with star players, with great veterans, and he was, I mean, people say he was literally the second most important player on that 2003 championship team because he could come in and hit shots and he thought he was the best player on the court at all time. And a lot of times that's all you need is that LeBron looking at you like, dude, do not screw this up for me. Or that Duncan or that Robinson or whatever it is. And you just need these guys to fall back into their role. And I, I think, you know, Miami... Dion Waiters was was good enough on that team, particularly teams of the past, to say uncontested, I'm the best player on this team. I'm going to shoot the ball. He knows he can't do that here. So he's checked, and he knows he's checked. People have that level of respect for LeBron, and that's what I think these players need, and I, and I think Dion Waiters could be really important for this team. It'll be interesting. 
And I think we should remember that when he got that big extension in 2017, it was not something that people laughed at because he had just had a really exciting, promising season. One more crazy thing thrown into just the Lakers roster composition. Markeith Morris is on this team and he's only played eight games for them. So they're still going to have to work on how to integrate him, how to play him alongside, you know, AD and LeBron and uh, traditional center. All of this, it's going to be fascinating, but... They have the talent, and obviously they have the star power because it's very rare when you have two top five guys in the league, which is what I believe LeBron and AD are, and they don't win the title. Generally, that just happens, but it's an interesting squad without a doubt. I'm going to take my third thing to the other LA team, and it's, it's a matter of their second star. I want to see if Paul George is really ready to turn it up because... He's coasted through a lot of this season. He hasn't been overly impressive. And it's, you know, the production has been there. Obviously, he's all-star. his production is still all-star level. It's not 28 points a game, defensive player of the year candidate, Paul George that we got last year, which was an incredible Paul George to watch and my favorite version of him ever. But if you just look at this year, he's just been more passive. He's been willing to float around on the perimeter. We've talked about this. I've talked about this for, you know, since really early in the season. His free throw attempts are way down. His percentage of his attempts that come from three are way up. And yes, that's natural. He's more efficient from three. Uh, and, you know, obviously playing alongside Kawhi, he can't act like he's the alpha guy. But in playoff situations, sometimes you need two alpha guys. Sometimes you need a Kyrie and a LeBron or a D-Wade and a LeBron. And... That's just the nature of it. You need people who go out there and get buckets. And I think that Kawhi would love to have someone alongside him who's willing to go out there and get 25 a game. And the thing with Paul George is it's, you know, maybe you can blame part of it to the transition from injury. And maybe that is part of it, part of the the tentativeness from him. Maybe it's being in a new system and not wanting to, you know, overimpose and act like he's the guy on this team. I don't know what it is, but it hasn't gotten better. His last 10 games before the suspension, he was averaging 15.6 points per game. Three and a half free throws a game versus seven a game last year. So I understand if he doesn't want to step on toes, but he needs to be himself because Paul George, Indiana Paul George, was a athletic, downhill, attacking alpha scorer. And obviously, his, you know he's always had a perimeter game. He's become even more perimeter-centric, and as he should. He's an outstanding three-point shooter. I just don't want him to relegate himself to you know getting more than half of his offense from catch and shoot opportunities. I want him to go out there and create and in minutes where there aren't Kawhi take over, you know, there are offensive creators on this team. Obviously Lou Williams is the first that comes to mind as a guy that can run an entire unit absent of Kawhi, but you just don't want Lou Williams playing crunch time minutes because of what he is defensively. So I just want to know if Paul George is, has just been waiting to turn a corner and if he's just been saving himself for the playoffs and kind of coasting for that reason, because if they are going to become the championship favorite, he needs to do more than he has done. He hasn't been bad, but he has not been what he is capable of. And what I think a lot of people expected the Clippers were getting this offseason, which is a bona fide top 10 guy, two-way monster like he was last year. Yeah, and I just don't I don't think 50% of his shots could, should be coming from three. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening right now. He, he is such a monster going downhill. And you touched on a little bit, but for me... I understand when he plays that off-ball shooter, secondary creator role when Kawhi's on the floor, but he should be the top five kill shot scorer that he was last year when he when Kawhi's not on the floor. That would help this team out so much because he 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 gets placed in this role of the secondary guy when Kawhi's on the court, and then it feels like he just coasts in that role the whole time and he can't 
switched between gears. Because when he's on the floor alone, I don't care if Lou Williams is on the floor. I don't care. It's It should be totally his show. We should see a totally another version of Paul George in those minutes. But we don't. He plays the same way the whole game. He's really perimeter-centric. He lets Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell run the show in that lineup. And he plays off ball if he gets the ball. Obviously, he's a star. He can attack and go. He can shoot, whatever it is. But I want him to ha- dominate the ball when Kawhi doesn't dominate the ball. Because then, I mean, all your lineups are either Kawhi dominating the ball alone, Kawhi, and P- Kawhi on the floor dominating the ball with PG as that secondary option, or PG dominating the ball, which should be top five offensive players dominating the ball at all times. And then you got the secondary third guys with Lou Williams. That should be pretty much unstoppable. And I really do... like. I get scared for my Lakers p- prediction every time I think about that yeah. possibility in that future. But Paul George hasn't stepped up, and he yeah. he needs to because if he does, it is very hard to beat that team in seven yeah. games. It's very hard to score with that team in seven games. It's yeah. very hard to score on that team for seven yeah. games. So we'll see. But I agree. I, I I'm I'm looking forward to him hopefully figuring that out and turning it up a year. And I'm really fascinated because I want to see is this just a is this a mental block? Is there something physical that has gotten into his head? Or has he literally just been conserving himself and doing the... I mean, Kawhi doesn't coast when he plays, but just having that mentality of saving yourself for the playoffs. I'm really fascinated by that. So let's move on. What is your fourth thing? My fourth thing is is this Boston team, which is an interesting team. That They're a team that can really compete in the East. There's four teams, I think, most notably being the Bucks, Raptors, Boston and Philly. I I don't really consider Miami an Indiana contender. Some people do, but those four teams really have a shot, especially because Milwaukee's a little bit unproved in the playoffs. And we'll see. But my question for Boston is if they can create a pecking order and if Brad Stevens can make the tough decisions that he's going to make. Because at the end of the day, you can't rely on the 2020 2020 from Brown, Tatum, Hayward, and Walker in big games. And sometimes it feels like these guys defer to each other in really weird ways. It feels like there's something about the culture where they want to play unselfishly. So it's like, okay, I'm Tatum. I just got eight. Now Hayward, go get yours. Now Brown, go get yours. That doesn't work in the playoffs. There needs to be a guy. People just separate into tiers. And that needs to happen. And, and it didn't. It hasn't happened the last last year it did not happen for Boston. They they couldn't separate themselves. It it was obviously a lot of it was on Kyrie. He he, he was doing a weird, weird little run the show, maybe even screw over the show thing. But Tatum kind of dropped off in the playoffs last year. He didn't look great. He didn't look comfortable. The percentages are really really bad, especially from three, and it, it wasn't there. And he needs to show that alpha in him because this team is way too talented to go down without a fight. And for Brad Stevens, the reality is they're always better with Marcus Smart on the court. If you go through their lineups, the top five include Marcus Smart. And a lot of that is leaving Jalen Brown off, leaving Gordon Hayward off, leaving one of these wings off. And I believe it's just because Marcus Smart knows his role. Yes, he's still pretty trigger happy, probably too trigger happy, but... He knows he needs to defer. He loves to set big screens for for the wing-on-wing actions of Tatum and him or Brown and him. But I I feel like Brad Stevens is going to be more pressured than he should be to play that core group of Hayward, Brown, Tatum, Walker together. It just doesn't work. It diminishes their games. It it wrecks their confidence, especially in Hayward's case. And I think you need to find more places to just be assertive with putting Smart in those lineups, 
letting Tatum completely run the show, letting Walker be the secondary guy, and maybe sit the Browns, the Haywards, because there needs to be some sort of pecking order on this team. It's so clear that Tatum needs to be the guy. It's been clear for years. It's been clear since he came to the league that that's the role that he's developing into. And I understand that the friendly competition between Brown and Tatum is good, and they're both trying to be the superstar. But you got to make one of them defer, and it's going to be Brown. And if he's not, if he's not going to be able to do that tangibly on the court, then it's on Stevens to get smart in there as much as possible to to create opportunities where Tatum knows he's the guy, where he can take over games comfortably without feeling like he's stepping on the on the toes of his teammates mm-hmm. and I just think they're such an interesting team like they yeah. have so many damn good players yeah. and they can play so many different they can do anything on defense they have bigs that can slide and switch they have bigs that can dominate in the post that can dominate other big bigs they have wings all across the board they have wings that can guard anyone in the league they have explosive scores they they have high pick and roll opportunities they have short roll opportunities like they have everything you could possibly need it's just about putting it together in the right way and not being scared of your players egos or attitudes and just being able to pick the right guys at the right times i think this is a really interesting topic because you bringing up jalen brown as sort of the main competition for the alpha spot i think is really interesting because Kemba has done a great job of deferring to Jason Tatum and letting him, especially this past month and a half where Tatum has obviously just gone berserk averaging like 30 a game, he's established himself as the alpha at this point. Come playoff time, there could be a change there, but I've been really impressed from Kemba just considering the fact that he's been the best player on playoff teams. He averaged 26 a game and was all NBA last year, and he understands that he's not the best player on this team. I think you make a great point because obviously Tatum, Brown, Hayward, they all they they all are they're different players. Hayward is obviously more of a an initiator and a playmaker as far as sort of playing a point forward role. Brown is more traditional three and D. He's expanded his shot creation, but he's more of a traditional second or third option. And then Tatum is your traditional wing alpha dominant scorer. But there are duplicative skill sets from all of them. And who, you know, is Induplicable. No one else in the NBA plays like him is Marcus Smart. And he's a winning player and as crazy as some of the shots he takes and as terribly inefficient as he's been his entire career, he no one plays like him and he definitely impacts winning and he's different. He brings variety and, you know, there's a reason that you don't throw five of the same player out there unless if you could throw five LeBrons out there, you would, but you don't throw out five Kawhis, although I guess you would do that too because defensively you'd be unsolvable. But the point is... You know, you do need to have a pecking order, and I agree completely. And I think that there is a ceiling for this team that is yet to be unlocked. They could easily be the most talented team in this conference. And I think if the Raptors have outperformed them for most of this year, but the Celtics have always had that intrigue. And if Tatum is able to, you know, and this has been talked about so much, if he can take that ascent to be a top 10 guy and a consistent 26-point-per-game score or whatever it is in these playoffs— then, you know, good luck. That's yeah. scary to everyone. And I just, it, it's weird to call for these things nowadays because it, it goes against everything we know uh, basketball-wise and winning, but I, I'm calling for a heliocentric offense around Tatum. Like, they run just this democracy of an offense. It's, it's fun to watch. You have pretty much Tice at the free throw line, maybe a little bit higher, and then everyone gets the ball and everyone gets pick and rolls, and they just run these spread four on the wings with Kemba, Tatum, Hayward, Walker, or uh, Hayden, Hayward, Tatum, Brown, uh, Walker, 
and they all get runs at pick and rolls. There are possessions where every single one of them gets the dribble handoff from Tice, takes it, dribbles over to the wing, hands it off to the other one. They go for the screen and roll with Tice too. If it's not there, they hand it off to the other one, and so on and so on. It That just does not work for the best teams in the NBA. There has to be some sort of pecking order. And it's hard to look at a guy like Jalen Brown and say this is a guy that scores over 20 points a night on almost 50-40 splits from the field in three, and he might be impacted his team negatively in this weird, almost subconscious realm. But he is. And it's something about it's something about confidence, and it's something about how basketball teams are meant to be constructed in a hierarchy that there needs to be on the floor. And I just think they need to switch it up, and, and I hope they do. And, you know, next year, maybe, or this offseason, maybe that's looking at dealing some of their pieces to, to just straighten out that lineup. Maybe that's a Brown, maybe that's a Hayward. I don't know. But right now, you got to work with what you have, and, and you got to figure out the best rotations for these guys. And I think that we can all agree that the potential there is pretty incredible. My fourth thing that I'm really more interested in than excited by is what direction the San Antonio Spurs take because they're in a very unique position here in the bubble and that they are a weird team that is not great and I don't think a person in America outside of San Antonio and any basketball fan in the world would bet on being the one to even snag the opportunity for the playing game and because of that I wonder what they do with LaMarcus Aldridge and DeMar DeRozan because you have two older guys here who you know, especially on the Marcus Aldridge's end. I don't know if they're going to be concerned about injuries, if they're going to show any trepidation to play. They haven't publicly, to my knowledge, thus far. But this is an opportunity to lean into the young guards. You have this eight-little, this eight-game experimentation period, and it might be difficult for them to see it that way because obviously their goal is to make the playoffs, but it's kind of how I see it with the Suns. The Suns aren't going to make the playoffs, but we get to see them at full strength, and we get to see what they are capable of. For the Spurs... This is the time to tinker because you have DeJounte Murray, Bryn Forbes, and Derek White all at 24 to 25 minutes a game this year. And none of them are exceptional players. You know, they showed that they value DeJounte Murray with the extension before he even started playing this season. Derek White had a huge playoff moments last year. Bryn Forbes is just an incredible pure shooter of the basketball, one of the absolute best in the league. And I'm not saying that any of them need to be 35-minute-a-game guys, but... For these eight games, which is almost sort of in its own universe, and I know that it's tough to sell a team that is there to make the playoffs, that they're not going to make the playoffs, but I just really, really, really don't think they are, and I would like to see if they can sort of, you know, accelerate this transition, because it is inevitable. I don't think there's a franchise cornerstone on this team from the younger group, but you want to give people the chance to develop, and Lonnie Walker who has shown some really promising moments and was a raw prospect coming out of college, still just getting 14 and a half minutes a game in his second season as a, whatever he was, the 18th pick of the draft. He was a guy who had a lot of potential. And we've seen there have been spurts. He had a 20-something point game earlier this year that I saw. He can be exciting. Do you want to just let him play? Because what is this DeRozan-Aldridge pair giving you? Nothing. Yaka Pertl has only started 10 games this year. You probably just can't sit LaMarcus Aldridge, but... You know, Jakob Pertl was a major part of the Kawhi Leonard deal. He's an asset that they clearly valued. He was incredibly valuable to that Raptors bench mob. And none of these guys have star ceilings, in my opinion, but they all do very tangible, valuable things on the basketball court. And I just want to see if they can carve out more of a role for them when it really does not matter if they win or lose these games. Again, I understand it's tough to look Greg Popovich, 
who is, you know, in his final days as a coach. Maybe he has another year. I know he's going to coach through the Olympics, which obviously have been delayed. Either way, he's on his way out and he wants to win as many games as he can. But you got to have a little bit of perspective here and understand that DeRozan and Aldridge, their time together as far as contributing to any sort of winning is very limited. And we saw that this year because they're not going to make the playoffs, even when the expectation was that they might. So I just want to see if they experiment and if they do, how they go about it. Yeah, I hope they experiment. And just there was a time and place for Pop's development track which obviously was a long path to getting on the floor and that's when they were at a championship caliber and they didn't want non-championship caliber players on the court with your Duncans and your Parkers and your Ginobili's but nowadays they're a team that needs to decide whether they want to tank or not that that's the position they're in and the fact that Lonnie Walker is still as raw as he is after his second year it's just ridiculous at this point like like this guy could be so much farther along in his development if you just gave him more court time if you if you trusted him more when he made mistakes with that court time and you know the same goes for your Derek White's the same goes for your Dejounte Murray's same goes for your Bryn Forbes and I do think that they have a couple pieces that could contribute to winning teams I agree that I'm not sure if anyone is a franchise cornerstone but I do think they could be around on winning sport Spurs teams if, if the Spurs can build in that direction in five years ideally um and I agree. I, I I agree that it's interesting, and you know I've been calling for it for this this entire year now. Is that yeah. Pop commits to a rotation of his young guys and just plays them, gives them confidence, lets them screw up all these things, yeah. just so we can develop and and have some sort of promising future. Because the, 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 the distrust of these twenty one year olds mm-hmm. who already lack confidence, who are already in one of the toughest systems in the league. It doesn't do. It doesn't do any. And maybe you know you can talk about maybe it's the, the the new generation of kids and they're softer. Whatever it is, it's not doing anyone any favors. And and I really think that it's deterring these players from reaching their maximum potential because they're losing a lot of confidence and um they're just not they're not on the right development track. And the problem is, a lot of these guys aren't that young. Bryn Forbes is 26 and he probably has the lowest ceiling of any of them just because his skill set is so clearly outlined and he does get consistent minutes Derek White's 25 because obviously he spent a couple years at Colorado Springs whatever D3 college that was and he took his time coming out of college DeJounte Murray is only in his third season but he's 23 and I don't know how high the ceilings with any of those guys are my biggest concern is Lonnie Walker at this point because I think one of the specific issues with his game right now is feel Coming out of college, he always had really incredible potential as a shot maker. He had, you know, a pretty solid handle. He had athletic burst. He's a good pure shooter. He's always had defensive potential just because he's long and athletic on that side. But what is he as a playmaker? Can he run your offense? These are the things that he wants to figure out. Can he carve out buckets without the ball? We don't know that. And he's not really being given a fair opportunity to find it out. And yes, he's playing, but he's not playing like a prominent franchise cornerstone which is obviously what you hope to get every time you invest in a pick like him and Jakob Pertl playing 16 and a half minutes a game that just really surprises me because you know he's not the best player in the world but he's highly efficient he has great touch he's a really imposing rim protector and these are these are guys who you just want to get run and maybe it's pointless because they're not going to be your superstars but I don't know you got to mix up something you just can't doing the same thing you can't keep doing the same thing over and over again when it has such a clear ceiling on it and it's not even going to be 
the direction of your franchise for much longer because LaMarcus Aldridge's time left as a valuable player is just going to be limited. So let's move on. What is the last thing that you're looking forward to? Um, yeah, the, the last thing was really broad, and, and I'll be short here, but I listed a lot of players that have the opportunity to go from good to great players or great to one of the best players in the league, and I just want to see what they can do. It, it, I listed Siakam, Oladipo, Jamal Murray, Jason Tatum, Chris Middleton, Joel Embiid, Kristaps Porzingis, and these are guys that I want to know what they are. I want to know if they're one of the best players in the league or if they're just great players, or I want to know if they're great players or just good players, and can they take a step and establish themselves. A lot of these guys signify to me for their teams sink or swim in the playoffs. Oladipo, if, if he can't get back to playing his his star-level ball, the Pacers are going to lose in the first round. Siakam, he's got to be a number one, number one guy for Toronto to really compete in the playoffs. And I mean, and I mean, you know, make a finals run. Mm-hmm. Jamal Murray, huge, huge to the Nuggets to develop as a perimeter threat. I liked what he did in the playoffs last year. I think he scored 21.3 points a game or something in the playoffs last year. It wasn't that efficient, but I just liked that he it was more consistent. He was getting the over 20 consistently, whether it was efficient or not. I, I, I liked that he was asserting himself more. Tatum, we've talked about it before. Middleton's a guy that can totally make or break this playoffs for the Bucks, being that secondary option and being the number one perimeter guy there. And then Embiid is just this guy that everybody in the league is saying can be the MVP, can be the best player in the league if he's in shape and stuff, but he hasn't shown it. Mm-hmm. And now he had the four months. People say he's in shape. The lineup is is molded more so to, to his success. Mm-hmm. What's he going to do? And Porzingis. Dallas can upset a team, man. Mm-hmm. Dallas can totally upset a team. If they can get into that sixth slot and play the Nuggets, Dallas could upset a team. And, and, and it's a lot about Porzingis returning to his all-star self, his self that scored 22.7 points a game for the Knicks, his self that attacked the rim ferociously, mm-hmm. that could still shoot the three, that was actually a unicorn instead of a tall guy that just shoots threes. Mm-hmm. And and we need to see it. So those are the players that I'm most interested in on an individual basis in this playoffs because it, it's, it, it, you know, we know what Lowry's going to bring to the Pacers. We know what Sabonis and Brogdon are going to bring. We know what Jokic is going to bring. These are the wild cards. Mm-hmm. These are the guys that are young, maybe, that haven't had that huge playoff experience, that haven't established themselves entirely in the league to the, to the, to the tier that we want them to. What are they going to do? Are they good enough? Are, are they going to sink their team? We'll see. We'll see. But I'm interested. This is part of the beauty of the bubble, is that we are getting an overwhelmingly healthy NBA. Obviously, if you were going to miss the whole season, I mean, actually, not necessarily if you're going to miss the whole season. Some guys who are supposed to miss the whole season are coming back, like Nurkic and Collins. We have these people healthy, and immediately they're being thrust into big spots. And we're going to see if they can perform on the highest level. A lot of intriguing names in there. One who I specifically had written down is my last... Uh, my last thing is Victor Oladipo. And my question is, is he a net positive or a net negative for the Pacers? He hasn't even officially said that he's going to play. His official statement is still that he's not going to play, actually, but that seems highly unlikely considering he's in the bubble playing in scrimmages. I don't see why at this point he would take it off to preserve himself to try to get a contract that you know he very well may not get because he certainly hasn't played like he deserves it right now. In 13 games after coming back from his injury, averaging just 14 three-on-three and on 39% shooting, 30% from three with negative on-off splits, insanely bad at-rim finishing, shot 40.5% from zero to three feet, and he's healthier now. The thing is, 
he's still not going to be in that game rhythm and have that feel that you need to have to be peak Victor Oladipo, which is an all-NBA level guy, a two-way monster. At least I would imagine he's not there considering they had three months of doing absolutely nothing. And I just don't know. He he entered this team, obviously, everyone expected him to be the best player, and he just wasn't. And in many ways, he was a detriment because Brogdon and Sabonis developed an incredible chemistry. The Brogdon Sabonis pick and roll is one of my favorite things to watch. These were two highly productive, all-star level, or at least for Brogdon, borderline all-star level players. They were plus five points per 100 together, the two of them. When you add Oladipo, lineups with those three are minus 10.2 points per 100. That's like being the worst team in the league when you add Oladipo into that just because he hasn't found a way to integrate himself. He still wants to be the number one alpha star. And, you know, it's not like he's an insane catch-and-shoot guy. He's good enough, though. He needs to find a way, especially as he's recovering from this injury and working his way back into this team and into the game. He needs to find a way to operate off of those two guys without disrupting what they have going on. Because I've always thought Brogdon has some really intriguing abilities off the ball. But if he's a true point guard at this point. He's a really great pick-and-roll point guard who needs to have the ball in his hands more often than not. And Oladipo, as athletic as he is, if it's as a cutter, if it's as a spot-up shooter, right now he needs to just be willing to be a 17-point-per-game guy who is not running the offense, who plays really hard, great defense, and that's how he helps them win. If he doesn't do that, and if he keeps playing sort of like he was when he came back immediately, that could be problematic. And I think it's very likely that he, believing in himself, having been the best player on a playoff team for a couple years in Indiana, or maybe he just thinks that he's the star and he goes ahead with that. So I want to see how and if he adjusts. Yeah, well, you know, it, it was recently reported that Sabonis is leaving the bubble because of a severe foot injury. So I don't I don't think he's going to be playing at all. So that's going to be really interesting. Just the two guard front without the pick and roll game of a Sabonis. Um, but I, I agree. I, I think without Sabonis, you might just want to go all in on trying to get on betting on all of Depot's field yeah. coming back and trying to get him to be the 25 point per game guy. Yeah. Cause Brogdon's going to have a little bit of trouble, uh, with miles Turner as his main pick and roll partner or whatever that's going to turn into. But it's interesting. I just, it's hard because again, it's so obviously just the time off and the lack of feel stuff yeah. like the around the, not being able to slow your game yeah. down enough to create contact and just yeah. being in such a rush. Cause you just got back and you're tired and all that stuff. You know, that's, that's really tough, but I, I just hope, I just hope he can find his feel again because again, like he, he needs to show something. He, he, yeah. he really does. He, he wasn't playing the way that he should have been playing when he came back. And he, I agree. He was, it was to the detriment of his team. Yeah, I didn't realize that Sabonis was going to be leaving the the bubble. Woj tweeted that while we were doing this pod. I saw that he had, I saw that he had a foot injury, but I didn't realize that it was going to be that serious. That could be problematic because so much of their offense is dependent on that. And then I agree, maybe then you do unleash Oladipo and see what he can do, and that would be interesting in its own way. But it's not what this team's going to look like long term. And I do think the Pacers are at a crossroads where they need to decide if. Oladipo is someone they invest in because obviously that raises the ceiling of this team. Then you have an incredibly talented team, especially when you consider what TJ Warren has made himself into there. Obviously what Miles Turner gives you as a two-way impact player. That can be a great team, probably not a championship team, but better than whatever they have without a good version of Oladipo. And I'm definitely interested in seeing how this all plays out. So that's going to do it for us here today. We're six days out from seeing all of this become a reality, which is really exciting. And 
know, we've had a long time without live basketball and just even seeing these scrimmages has been fun. And when it actually matters and there are some stakes, that's going to be even better. So I've been Carson Brever. Alongside me was Carvel Teft. Hope you enjoyed it.